Welcome to the Bot Canon, where we take the first 100 words of a piece of classic human literature and give it to a bot to finish to see how it ends differently. Today, we're reading All Quiet on the Western Front by Eric Maria Rimar. We are at rest five miles behind the front. Yesterday we were relieved, and now our bellies are full of beef and haricot beans. We are satisfied and at peace. Each man has another mess tin full for the evening, and what is more, there is a double ration of sausage and bread. That puts a man in fine trim. We have not had such luck as this for a long time. The cook, with his carroty head, is begging us to eat. He beckons with his ladle to everyone that passes and spoons him out a great dollop. He is a good fellow, the cook. The men all love him, for he is as fond of a joke as they are. Sometimes our general will cut off the bottom of a man's tin and order six or eight to be made into a great communal stew. Everyone is keen on that. We sit and eat our sausage today, wondering perhaps at the folly of war. The others think it was a foolish affair, but I say it was all right. Our general knew very well what he was doing. He reckoned on taking the town, and he got it, too. We were fighting for our existence then, and that makes a lot of difference. I'm getting on a bit in years now, and I have seen most things. I was at Waterloo, in the thick of the charge that broke the English squares, and we formed square, too, and the Frenchman came on and drove us back again. I nearly fell that day. My shako was knocked off, and there was a Frenchman at my heels, and as I struggled up, I trod on his bayonet, and it went through my leg just above the knee. It hurt like hell, and I had to lean up against a pine while my comrades came round me. I have often wondered since how I should have got on if the Frenchman had come on at that moment. I should have tried to run, and they would have tried to run me down. And now here we were with our general, resting behind the lines. Nothing of the fighting comes within our view, but we know that the town is full, and that as soon as the battle is over, we shall go over and march in. They say there are a good many English prisoners, and we shall take many guns, too, and bags of ammunition. What we want, of course, is victory, and in war you can't have everything. Still, we have made a good fight, and the fellows say that our general is the finest that ever stepped. The general came walking down between the pine trees toward our camp, and we saluted. He answered the salute, and came across and sat down beside our fire. We are going to march into town tonight, he said. There are rumors of defeat, but I do not attach any importance whatever to them. The English, you know, are a nation of shopkeepers, and to retreat when things look bad is their great safeguard. They don't believe in putting everything to the hazard of war. So if we march into town tonight, we can reckon on a good reception. Come on, men. We all got up and stood round him while he gave his orders. You see, he said, if we march in at once, the townspeople, or a good many of them, will come over to our side. The others are either with the English or in hiding. On Sunday, we were almost masters of this town, and we should have had no difficulty in taking it, but we were stupid, and we allowed them to dig themselves in. Now we have to storm it, and that is always a risky business. It can't be helped, said I, and the sooner it is done, the better. Yes, but mind you, if we don't take it, it won't be our fault. It will be the fault of those administrators who were stupid enough to let the English get entrenched. Well, time to march, so off we go. And off we went trudging through the pine woods while the general talked to the officers. "'Who will go in first? he asked. "'Those who can carry scaling ladders,' said someone. "'Those who can climb?' "'Precisely,' the general said. Turning to me, he said, "'That means you, private.' I felt myself growing red, and I wished the ground would open up and let me in. "'Very well,' I said, and I picked up my ladder and followed two hundred yards behind my comrades. I stayed far behind so that I should not be seen.' If they saw me, I knew they would send me on some fool's errand, and I should be shot before ever I climbed the wall, so I had to march along slowly behind them. Presently, we came to the ditch, which was full of water. I took my ladder, and without saying anything, set to work to wade across, for I felt sure that if I once got over, I should be all right. My only fear was they would send me on some idiotic errand. 
When I got to the middle of the ditch, the ladder broke, and I had to let it go. I fell down into the water to the sound of laughter. There was a great splashing of feet, and I feared lest I should be seen. But no one took any notice, and soon I was clambering out of the ditch and joining my comrades at the foot two hundred yards further on. "'Did you get over all right, Joe?' asked the general. "'No thanks to your confounded ladder,' I answered. "'I couldn't help it,' said the general. "'They are wretched things when they have been in the water. "'Now we have to hurry up or we shall be late. "'If we are late, there may be no quarters for us and no plunder either.' So we hurried up the hill and came to the first houses. We could see lights in the windows and hear voices. "'They're trying to get away,' I said. "'Yes,' said the general, "'but they won't succeed.' I heard a window open softly behind me, and looking round, saw a face looking at me. It was a woman's face, and seemed strangely familiar. She waved her hand to me and beckoned me to come in. "'Come in, soldier,' she said, and her voice sounded strangely familiar. I looked round at the nearest men. "'Come on,' I said. "'I must leave my comrades and go in.' "'Don't be a fool,' they answered. "'She is a spy, and you may be shot. Run back and get into the ranks.' "'I can't,' I said. "'I must go in.' "'Then you must get yourself shot, and we won't pick you up again,' they answered. I stood hesitating for a moment. "'I won't go in,' I said, "'unless you come with me.' "'What?' they said. "'I must ask you to come with me,' I said. They scoffed. "'Of course we won't. You're on your own.' So I went in alone, knowing well that it was madness, but being compelled by some force which I could not resist. The woman had opened a door for me, and I went in and found myself in a room with two beds in it and a table and some chairs, all quite clean and neat. "'Sit down,' I sat. She placed herself opposite to me. "'I want you to listen to what I'm going to say to you,' she said. I bowed. "'I am a Frenchwoman,' she said, "'and I live in this house.' I nodded. "'You see,' she said, "'I am a spy.' "'I have heard as much,' I answered. "'You will do me a service,' she said. "'What is it?' "'I want to get out of Paris tonight. "'Will you help me?' "'I can get you out of Paris.' "'I didn't know why I agreed to help her, "'except that she reminded me of someone. "'Will you help me?' she asked. "'I can get you out of Paris.' "'Will you?' "'Yes,' I said, after some hesitation. "'Then come into the corridor,' she said, "'and I will give you something to put on.' There was something about her that I could not resist. There was something strangely familiar about her voice and manner. She seemed strangely familiar, and yet I had never seen her before. I went out of the room with her, and closing the door softly, she led me down the corridor. She opened a closet and handed me some men's clothes. Put these clothes on, she said. I can't, I said. I can't wear them. You must put them on at once and come downstairs, she said. She was so insistent, I knew I had to obey, so I quickly dressed in those clothes and followed her downstairs. There she opened a door and showed me into a room where there were some beds and some straw in the corner. Make up these beds as quickly as possible, she said, and then rest until eleven o'clock. I can't. I was too restless to sleep, knowing I would be assisting a spy. You must, she said. The war may come to an end tonight, and if you have earned your passage, you will get it. You can help me best by sleeping. I can't, I said. "'You must,' she answered. "'So I lay down and did my best to sleep. "'When morning came, we quickly got ready and left the house. "'She had taken a circuitous way, "'for we passed through the market where there were a great many soldiers. "'They paid no attention to us, however, "'and she nodded to them as she passed. "'This is my favorite walk,' she said. "'It's too bad this is the last time I will take it.' "'We said nothing, and presently we came to the river. "'There is a ferry boat there that will take us out,' she said.' We got into the boat, and presently we were passing under the bridge. Look, she suddenly whispered. I looked. 
To my surprise, there was the sentinel pacing his beat, his bayonet fixed. She looked at me a moment and then burst into a peal of laughter. I did not understand, but thought the laugh must have been at me. Presently, the boat grounded on the bank and we got out. I'm sorry for laughing, she said. I just felt it so funny that you should be afraid of him. We walked into the wood and soon picked up the track on the other side. After some time, we stopped, and she pointed to the earth. Look, she said. I looked and saw some blood. It was here, she said, that I killed a man last night. I had to do it, she continued, or he would have shot you. He was going to blow you up, you see, and take your place. It was you he was after, but I had taken the precaution to remove your uniform, so when he shot at it, you weren't in it, and I was able to take him down. Thank you for saving my life, I said, but why did you have to kill him? She looked at me. Oh, she said, that's war. We walked on again, and presently we came to a road where we intended to ask for some food. Wait here a moment, she said, and she stepped off the road. She came back in a moment, stepping off the road again, and held out her hand. What's that? I asked. A map, she answered. It was in the pocket of one of the dead men I killed last night. It's a map of the region round about here. I looked at the map, and then at the surrounding country. What are we looking for? I asked. There was a chateau here, she said, and it was marked on the map. We may find something to eat there and have our horses shod. And on we went, the spy and I, until finally we came to Paris. I worried that my German uniform would attract too much attention, but fortunately I had enough French money with me to exchange it for the clothes I had worn the night before. She told me to hurry home and to get some clothes of my own, for she was traveling on to some other place. But what will happen to you now? I asked. Oh, I shall get away all right, she answered. But in case I don't, I have been preparing for it. Before I left Paris, I went to the post office and sent a telegram to a friend of mine in Berlin. It was asking him to send some money to a certain address. I will pick up that money and escape. When I got home, I went to the post office and sent a telegram to New York. Give 10,000 francs to Madame Steer, I said, and I put the rest of the money in a small bag and hurried off to my mother's house. She was not pleased to see me. Are you saying you deserted the army, she said? I wasn't in the army, I answered. You were paid to enlist. I deserted. But why? Well, you see, I answered, I got tired of it. I was homesick, and then I had to run away. My mother was furious. She kicked me out, and I found myself in the street again with only a small bag of money. I took a chance, however, and went to the hotel near where the spy had left me the night before. I have a message for you, I said, and showed it to her. I had no idea you spoke German, she answered. I am German, I said. Her eyes widened. I thought you were French, she said. I am a French officer, I said. A look of sudden fear came into her face. Oh, what have you done? She whispered. I deserted my regiment, and now I've joined the French army. But how? But it is all right, I said. I exchanged my uniform last night. I knew you hadn't, she said. But I did. Look. I showed her my new French uniform, and she nodded. I am glad to have you on our side, she said. And now everything will be all right. The next morning, we woke early. You had better get out of town, she said. You'll be safer. You mean you want me to leave Paris, I asked? Yes. She arranged for me to leave and travel to Brest, and she gave me a small sum of money. It was more than my share, she said. Now, goodbye. I was off at last, and I made my way back through France all the way back to Paris. That night, I arrived there after having traveled some months. I knew I would never again go back to Germany because I had deserted my country. The next morning I went to the hotel, where the military attaché of the German embassy met me. 
Where have you been all this time? He said. I have been traveling, I said. I have deserted my country, and I am now a French officer. I had not intended to confess, but the deed was done now, and I would have to face the consequences. Seize that man, cried the officer. And then I was marched off to prison, where I remained, my trial consequently being put off until a later date. The spy came to see me when I was in prison. Why did you confess? she asked. Because I had no choice, I answered. They were eager to kill me, and so they are not going to give me a chance. I was tried for desertion, and so I did confess it. But what about the evidence against you? I am the evidence against me, I said. On the day of the trial, I was judged guilty and condemned to death. Even before I was led out to be shot, I heard a voice I knew calling me. Armand, I cried. What is that? said the officer who was standing by me. Only the German, he said. I recognized him at once. I could not see Armand, but as I was led out to be executed, I heard his voice and it gave me comfort. The two soldiers marched me out into the courtyard and the order was given. Fire! A moment later, I stood there with my head severed from my body. When Armand heard my death cry, he ran into the courtyard, and there he witnessed the whole scene. My legacy lived on through him, and later, when Armand found out that he was the heir to a great fortune, he would always remember the kindness of a stranger who had helped him. If you would like to suggest a book for a future podcast or be a guest, please email us at thebotcanon at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at thebotcanon.